But we knew that aviation, as it always does, would come back, and we knew that we had to be prepared for it. We're looking at domestic markets recovering faster, shorter routes that are in higher Those of us in the aviation industry is strong. Some of the fastest growing segments within USM will be expensive. The marketplace, we need to invest in We need to succeed in aligning everybody on one single step. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Velocity Podcast brought to you by management consulting firm, Oliver Wyman. I'm Scott and Kraus, a principal specializing in our transportation and hospitality sectors. Joining me today is Lawrence Berka, also from Oliver Wyman, and Chris McLaughlin, Chief Operating Officer at Denver International Airport. I'm thrilled to have you both here on the show today. How are you doing? Doing great, Scott. Nice to see you again and speak with you. Happy to be welcoming Chris onto the show. Great to speak to you again, Chris, and looking forward to our conversation today. Thanks to you both. I'm really excited to be part of today's episode with you. Great. Looking forward to this interesting discussion. Oliver Wyman, in collaboration with the World Travel and Tourism Council, WTTC, recently launched a paper which offered global guidelines around the adoption of innovative digital technologies to enable safe and seamless travel. This will be the basis of the conversation between us today. We will then explore the ways in which Denver International Airport has been one of the early adopters and are leading the pack with biometric capabilities. Before we dive right in, Lawrence, for our listeners at home, can you explain the Safe and Seamless Traveler Journey program and what it is? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Scott. So together with WTTC, as Scott mentioned, we worked to define the Safe and Seamless Traveler Journey, which ultimately had a vision to create an end-to-end seamless journey across airlines, hotels, car rentals, cruises, et cetera. So all aspects of the traveler journey. A traveler being able to use one digital identity that is authenticated, verified, and trusted across all of the stakeholders in their journey. To accomplish that, we defined five different imperatives for success. The first is public and private sector collaboration. And it's really important to understand that governments need to work together to create that foundation that all data in a traveler's digital identity is authenticated and verifiable. Then you have the collaboration between the public and the private sector, which is really important to drive innovation and adoption. The private sector will need to work together to advocate for these regulations and global standards. The second is all around data collection and sharing. We believe that data should be owned, managed, and provided to stakeholders in their journey by the traveler. The traveler should be able to include any data that they choose. The foundation is a government-issued identity card, whether that's a driver's license, national ID, or passport, and is shared in a transparent manner to the traveler so they know how their data is being used by the different stakeholders. It's also important to use zero-knowledge messaging and other privacy-by-design capabilities. What is zero-knowledge messaging for those that are not familiar with that term? Yeah, great question, Scott. So zero-knowledge messaging is the ability to provide a binary yes-no answer to any stakeholder versus having to share personal information. For example, does Scott have a valid passport that has not expired? Yes, no, they can get a green or red symbol and they don't necessarily need to know the actual date of expiration or the birth date. If you see yourself going and purchasing something at duty-free in an airport and you have to be 21 versus sharing the actual age of the purchaser, you share a yes, no, whether they meet the criteria of age required. The third is data privacy, and this is all around adhering to the highest level of data privacy standards using privacy by design principles. 
And I think everyone knows around the globe that cybersecurity is a growing threat to enable adoption. Security is going to be the number one driver of adoption, and we need to keep the traveler's data as safe as possible. The fourth is interoperability. And this is really something that Chris will speak to in a little bit, but it's all around aiming to connect the end-to-end journey in an interoperable way that governments, different stakeholders in the private sector can all receive similar information. The critical element of interoperability is that traveler's data is stored based on these global standards, which will then allow that data to be shared with all stakeholders, public or private, and be able to ingest that data into their systems. The last of our five principles is customer first by design. In the safe and seamless traveler journey, whatever is created, the technology needs to enable stakeholders and travelers to utilize simple solutions that are easily operatable and that create an intuitive, non-cumbersome customer experiences. Furthermore, COVID has really accelerated this agenda. The proof of concept for digital identities are becoming a necessity, which are around these health passes, which everyone is talking about and will be needed moving forward, whether it's a test result or a vaccination record. But lastly, it's enabling that touchless experience, converting where checkpoints you used to have to actually physically pass an ID to someone to prove your identity, you can now do that in a touchless manner. And lastly, the goal of the seamless traveler journey, while it has shifted a bit over the concepts, it still aims to help reduce the strain on infrastructure when travel does come back. I think what's really important is it helps to bring back the traveler and stakeholder confidence in a much quicker manner to help the industry recover. So capturing, uploading biometric and biographic data before travel could transform the traveler experience. It would allow border and security agencies to authenticate and pre-clear travelers in advance of arrival. Absolutely. It enhances the security across the entire system, which is something that border security is and governments are very in tune to and is always on the top of their list of priorities. It also helps relieve that infrastructure and capacity constraints Furthermore, the traveler experience will be significantly improved. It's less checks, it's shorter lines at ports and airports. It creates the ability to social distance where needed, which Chris at the Denver airport speak to us about shortly, but it's something that they do and have done and implemented quite well. And one of those key areas for travelers is to be able to create that single digital identity containing their biographic data and any additional information required for identity establishment and verification. This will be used across all stakeholders, public and private, in the traveler's journey. It's become apparent that there is no one-size-fits-all solution. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. There needs to be strong collaboration across the board, from airports to airlines to technology providers to governments. It goes back to one of those key principles of collaboration. This is a hugely complex ecosystem, which is a challenge to navigate. Chris, it would be great for you to share a little bit of insights into the biometric program that you've implemented here recently at Denver. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Lawrence. It's been quite a journey for us that started about a year ago, and what a year it's been for all of us. So, Lawrence, you ended with the customer as your fifth principle, and really the customer is where we started. So very early in the pandemic, we knew that we were going to have to do things differently. Candidly, very early in the pandemic, there wasn't much of an issue because as we now know, worldwide, air travel was essentially ground to almost a halt. We were operating at less than 5% of normal in the early days. But we knew that aviation, as it always does, 
would come back and we knew that we had to be prepared for it. So we started with the path of the customer and you've heard the expression curb to gate. We followed sort of that logic and mapped out our customer's journey and focused on pinch points, focused on areas that would be most difficult for them to navigate while maintaining social distance, a term that we didn't even know a year ago. And we landed on two areas in particular for us. We landed on our security checkpoint. And in Denver, if you're flying on the B or C concourse, that area of least control, that area where you can't choose to wait five seconds while the next person goes up the escalator, or you can't choose to put five or six feet between you and the bin in front of you at the x-ray, that area that you have a real hard time controlling is the train. Because once you get onto it, you don't have an assigned seat. You are really trusting your fellow travelers not to overcrowd and not to pack it in. So that was the primary area early in COVID that we really wanted to address. Now, if you look at the coalition, early on, the TSA became a very willing and eager partner with us. And so the checkpoint became a next likely opportunity for us to tackle. One, it is difficult for customers. Two, it involves multiple steps. There's the line before the document check. There's the line between the document check and the x-ray slash body screening. And then potentially there's the line after the primary check if someone has to go through a secondary check. So there's stages where people get stuck. So it was a logical place for us to look. There really is this whole bigger thing out there. It predated COVID. It's touchless travel, seamless travel. And we've been talking about it for a long time. I would say aviation is defined by watershed moments, whether that's deregulation in the late 70s, whether that's 9-11, whether that's the fuel crisis in the 2000s, whether that's the Christmas Day bomber, whether that's excessive line weights in the last decade, or whether it's the COVID crisis. These watershed moments often take technologies, processes, policies that have been in play for, in some cases, decades, and they allow us the opportunity to accelerate. Because when the need is real, when the crisis is real, we as an industry tend to react more quickly and put things in motion that had been kind of in thought for a long time, but never had enough energy to actually sustain that perpetual motion. We do envision a whole new world of whether that's self-bag drops, whether that's access to lounges, whether that's concierge services, whether that's the ability to order food before you even leave the comfort of your couch. We believe the seamless, touchless experience is here to stay for customers and frankly, what we've done so far in Denver is only just the beginning. Chris, do you want to talk a little bit about navigating that complex ecosystem of the multiple stakeholders that you had to bring together? Sure. So first and foremost, in terms of talking about the journey we mapped out, the conclusion was this program we now call Verify. We introduced Verify in the fall of this year, and Verify consists of the ability to reserve a dedicated time and space through the TSA checkpoint and across our train car, where we limit a specific train car to a specific number of passengers in a specific time slot. We control it with a biometrically enabled e-gate and we allow you in or out based on your reservation. So it's been great for customers, especially those that truly have a high degree of concern for their health. One of my favorite anecdotes is a woman who had to travel for health-related reasons on a weekly basis had no choice. And so this gave her the ability to do it safely. 
In terms of navigating through the various stakeholders, though, there are competing interests. And when you provide a specialized program, the first thing that people ask is, why are they special? Did they pay for it? Are you treating them differently? We're not, by the way. Our program is very free. We want people to use it. It's a free service, something that we think is the best thing for the community. And then we have to deal with volume. So is there enough time and space for everybody? If we dedicate this car and this lane and the checkpoint, does that help the overall or does it hurt the overall? And an airline might view that differently than the TSA, who might view that differently than first responders, who might view it differently than our media relations, who might view it differently than any other group. And we have to work with that coalition and ensure that our mutual interest, at least our primary interest, is aligned. And that was the most important and maybe the hardest thing that we did when we built Verify was ensure early on that we were bringing everyone to the table. By the way, we didn't build it by committee. So when I say bring everyone to the table, don't be fooled that you can get everyone to agree with every new innovative thing you're going to do. So the second hardest thing we had to do was push through. And that meant that when we knew we were right, and when we knew that what we were doing was the best thing for the most people, we had to push through some hard weeks and months to ensure that, that we could put enough evidence out there that even the detractors ultimately had to come around and say, wow, this was the right thing to do, and I'm glad Denver did it. And what were some of those evidence pieces as you were going down the path of identifying Verify and understanding what does success look like for Denver and the airport itself and all these stakeholders? What are those key components that you looked for in a technology provider? Things for us really happened partly because of this coalition that came together. So frankly speaking, we were not seeking a technology provider. We were thinking about the problems facing our customers. And in the moment that we were thinking about those problems, a technology provider reached out to us unsolicited and said, and again, a risk patting ourselves on the back, but said, hey, we think Denver is an innovative airport that knows how to think ahead. We want to help create a solution for this pandemic and for the future. And we'd like to partner with you and we'd like to invest. It was that coming together. That was the two first pieces in this coalition. The president of that company refers to it as a coalition of the willing. And it was two people coming together saying, let's do this. And then we joined more and more into the group. That's how we got where we wanted to go. So success criteria for something like this was really important and a little bit difficult because these were things that didn't exist yet. So we looked at quantitative and qualitative measures. Quantitative, as simple as how many people are enrolling in the program, how many people are using the program, those types of things. From a qualitative perspective, we looked at true NPS score, as well as things like how likely are you to use this again, things like that. For me, an important measurement is just how interested is someone in communicating about the service. So we gave everybody a survey, and you'd be surprised at the open rate. Our open rate, it's around 25%. For an open rate on a survey, I think a lot of organizations would tell you that's pretty darn good. And then the scores of the survey are exceptional. People's desire to use the service a second time is in the 90s. To refer it to a friend is in the 90s. A pure NPS is in the 70s. It's truly a service that from a qualitative perspective is proving itself to be exceedingly valuable. And remember, we weren't trying to be super popular for everyone. That wasn't our goal. Our goal was to provide an opportunity for our most vulnerable 
travelers, for those people who truly needed to feel safe as they traveled. So it is sort of that instance of if one person was able to travel through COVID because of this safely, and the other thousands weren't negatively impacted, then that in and of itself would have been a successful measurement. In our case, what I'll say is the qualitative measurements are off the charts. From a quantitative perspective, because we're a single airport, sort of a single node in the network, growing the program has been slow. Getting thousands and thousands of people to participate on a daily or weekly basis isn't easy. That said, I will tell you there are hundreds of thousands of members of Verify now and thousands of transactions on a weekly basis through this airport. The technology provider, did they reach out pre-COVID and it just happened to work that COVID hit and things aligned or was it more of a post-COVID? It was post-COVID. So it's a provider that we've known. I mean, we talk to technologists all the time. So this was someone we had talked to pre-COVID about some other initiatives. Frankly, those initiatives were put on sort of a full stop with COVID. It was those early conversations, I would say, that led the technology provider to understand that we were the right partner for them. So they reached out to us within a month into COVID. It sounds like you've got quite a positive response from people and travelers who have used the Verify app and had the experience. Can you talk a little bit about some of the challenges that you may have faced? Yeah, so there's a few challenges. One that I'll just share first is that we still haven't cracked the return trip. You give somebody an experience on the way out and they want it on the way home. And so I would tell you that our single biggest challenge is that we're a one-way service right now. We're still thinking through that. And again, growing the network is an important step in solving that problem. I would also tell you that even though we believe strongly we're doing the right thing, where we have struggled some is perception. So when you have this limited capacity train car and you have this group of people that are in it, and you haven't done the research, and you don't know that Verify is a free service that you could have participated in, you are envious of those folks in the other car, and you think it's unfair that they were given quote-unquote special treatment. We believe strongly that we're being fair because we're offering the service again for free and open to everyone, and we're advertising as publicly as we can. But that factor has hurt us. Um, it has caused negative perception out there. We really try hard to correct that. That has been a challenge for us. I would say a third challenge is not everybody is tech savvy. So I will tell you, full disclosure, my daughter, four o'clock in the morning, 13 years old, in a relatively dark car heading to the airport for our first trip during COVID, was able to successfully enroll, make a reservation, successfully capture a photo image that was high quality enough and get through the process. So 13-year-olds could do it, but maybe they're more tech-savvy than the rest of us. And so to that point, Chris, where you talked about awareness and some individuals and travelers not being aware of the service of Verify and the capability to enroll, how are you making customers aware of this program? We're making customers aware as best we can locally, and that includes signage everywhere. It includes, it's part of our COVID response message Every chance we get, every press release, every interview, signs coming to the airport, et cetera. But the thing that has really begun to accelerate Verify, and it's the thing we knew would accelerate Verify, is that there are airlines who have started to adopt Verify for other purposes, including a true digital identity or a health passport purpose. And as those carriers have come online, Verify enrollments have gone from tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands. 
And Verify is now available in 55 countries worldwide, maybe more by now, as a health passport, not necessarily a line management or reservation system. So at the 55 countries, I think it's five continents, if I'm not mistaken. And now in venues like hotels, there's a hotel chain that just announced Verify last week. There are convention centers using Verify. There are universities using Verify. And that list just continues to grow. So this thing that started as a little line management reservation system in Denver, Colorado, has in five months gone worldwide. And Chris, one of the things I'm curious about, the word biometrics means a lot of things to a lot of people. What have you seen from adopters of Verify around the use of biometrics? So I think an important component for Verify is this notion that it's Verify. It's not give your face to the city and county of Denver or give your face to the federal government. I think what we see is consumers, customers, travelers, feel more comfortable, I think, acting in this sort of app-based world. Obviously, uh, customers give consent. They do all the things that they have to give damn permission to use their biometrics in Verify. But there hasn't been a lot of resistance to it, except, I guess, for those people that, that haven't joined. And, and let me be clear, we don't expect everyone to join. And we will always be an opt-in mindset. We don't think this is something that has to be required for everybody, for the applications we're talking about, at least. We think that we can truly rely on opt-in. Biometrics are different to different people, but the other thing that I would tell you is for us, we think the biometric is different at every aspect in your journey. And so we, in many regards, are using a biometric as a point-to-point wayfinding tool as opposed to a security verification tool. And that means we can do it differently. It means we can think about working at a higher speed There's a trade-off always between confidence and speed when you're talking about biometrics. If you're using the tool for security, confidence is of the utmost. If you're using it for speed in a non-security environment, like getting on a train, that confidence score doesn't have to be exactly as high for you to serve the purpose that you want to serve. And so it's really thinking about biometrics, not just that it's different for everybody, But actually, the application, the use of the biometric is different, potentially several steps along the passenger's journey. I think that's a great point, Chris. In the report that Oliver Wyman did with WTTC, we dive quite a bit into the level of biometrics that are needed. And as an example for what Chris just discussed, to cross a border, the level of biometrics and certainty of one's identity is very different than accessing a train car at Denver Airport educating the public about that is really an important evolution that governments in the private sector have to take on as part of the adoption and driving the adoption of biometrics and travel in the future is biometrics aren't all created equally. The one thing that's created equally, I think, is making sure there's consent and people know how it's being used is really the important piece. So Chris, I think maybe just to shift a bit, you know, we've talked a lot about the customers and the ecosystem that's been created at Denver. But another interesting perspective is considering how biometrics have actually impacted the airlines, airport employees, and the actual operation of the airport. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because when we talk about airports, we think about the hundreds of thousands of passengers that come through an airport like mine every day. Well, hopefully soon back to hundreds of thousands a day. But what actually is in many cases more significant is the tens of thousands of employees that come to that same airport every single day. 
And their experience through COVID was equally as important for us to protect as a customer. If a customer has chances to be in close proximity to other people or to touch things, if they have that opportunity in a day, an employee has it 10x or maybe 100x as they live and work in this environment. And so, again, similar to our customer experience, there were things that we were contemplating and even starting to play with before COVID that we really accelerated. And we're moving quickly to expand further with the way employees come to work and then access their their micro-level work site once they're at the airport. And it's built on the Verify platform. So Verify, when we built Verify first, we said, we're not going to do anything that doesn't last. And so we thought of this as a first thing to do, but the first of many. And the thing that we're working on now that we hope to launch maybe less than six weeks from now is a new entrance, a portal, if you will, for employees and certain select travelers that will arrive into a new experience where they can process through a facility essentially in a completely touch-free way and process all the way into the back end of the airport, avoiding the main terminal altogether. This facility will be built with the capability to do touchless temperature checking. I'm not a huge believer in temperature checking as the be-all, end-all for sure, but it is a layer. It is a layer that certain of our employers require today of their employees, so we're putting that capability in. We can toggle it on or toggle it off but that capability is there. And this will allow us to maximize utilization of our buses, maximize our parking lots, maximize facilities that we've had to either turn off or dial way back for the past year. We'll be able to reuse them now at their full potential, which will save obviously the airport, frankly, millions of dollars in operating costs. And it will speed the employee's journey from the parking lot to their work site. It will allow, again, certain customers to enjoy a better experience out to the airport. And it will allow us to prove this concept of sort of remote screening that we think has future applicability to airports all over the U.S. and potentially all over the globe. That's fascinating. It sounds really exciting and something that I'm sure your travelers and employees will be happy to partake in here in the future. One other aspect from the operations would be interesting to get your insights, and I'm sure our listeners and those who are in airport operations around the globe are looking to do similar programs for you, is how you've driven adoption by employees. So either they're your employees or contractors, and how they interface with travelers coming through asking questions about Verify, or they're trying to go through an e-gate, and how you've helped that customer experience Having employees being able to advocate for your new programs is really important, right? Our employees are face-to-face with customers all the time. So the first thing I would say is people tend to advocate for things that they identify with and believe in. And so we obviously allowed employees for their own purposes to enroll in the program early on, but by using Verify as the foundation for employee access as well. It has allowed all of our employees to become familiar with what that system is. We say all the time that we're an airport and our goal was never to hoard Verify. In fact, we want it to be a system-wide thing because it'll work better that way. That being said, for our employees here in Denver, at least there is some pride of ownership. This was a home-built program 
again, with Dayon, true partners, but there's a number of members of my team that were given a chance to roll up their sleeves and build something that now has global recognition. And I'm picturing a few of them right now that I'm just so proud of that a year ago didn't know they were going to have a chance to build something that would be seen around the world. I had that chance earlier in my career with PSA PreCheck. And to this day, I'm proud of that accomplishment. And I'm excited as an employer that large number of our employees have now had a chance to be part of something that I think will make a big difference for customers truly around the world. We talked about a number of stakeholders. One that I'd love to know a little bit more about is around the health departments and how they were engaged and when they got engaged in the discussions. That's a really great question. In aviation, we tend to be focused on federal regulators. With COVID, it was probably the most that we've been engaged with our local regulators in a long time, including both our state department of health and our local city department of health. And I will tell you that both those entities were involved very early on in Verify. We introduced them to it in the first couple weeks that we were going live. And both those entities have felt that this was one of the strongest things that we've been able to do to ensure customer safety and confidence coming through the airport environment. You mentioned being a first mover, and there's a lot of pride with being that first mover, no matter whether it's in aviation or across industries. There are airports out there that admire what you've done at Denver International. And I want to give you a chance to share some of those insights and advice that you've learned as a first mover to either don't make the mistake I made, or these are the things that really set us up for success moving forward. It's not easy to be a first mover, right? Because there's a whole lot of people that can be skeptical. You always will have people hoping you do well, and you'll always have some that are looking to see you fall on your face. So the first thing that I would say is you have to be really self-aware and you have to be somewhat self-critical. I've been a part of thousands and thousands of terrible ideas, and I've been part of a couple really good ones. And there's probably been a dozen that I didn't know, so I tried and failed. And so I would just say step one is be critical enough that you're not going to just put your airport or your entity's name on everything, right? There are some things you don't want to be the first mover on. Once you've identified something that you want to move forward on, then you have to be thick-skinned. You have to push. You have to be willing for someone to prove you wrong. You might be at a point where you think you're 100% right. You still might be wrong. You've got to be willing to go that far and let it happen. You've got to reevaluate along the way. And you've got to be willing to change course if necessary. And you've got to be willing to recognize that great solutions may persist for decades or for months, depending on what the need is. And so how do you make sure that whatever you're building, you're being open-minded enough to believe that it could last forever? In the airline industry, we say pull chocks, meaning quit, then you do that. Or if you evolve, you do that. I don't know whose expression this is, but it's the expression, if it was easy, it wouldn't be worth doing. I don't know whose that expression is, but I know it's not mine, but it's true. If doing something new was easy, then it probably isn't actually new. It's probably been done somewhere else already. So be willing to do the hard thing and be patient enough and persistent enough to push through. Again, with enough self-awareness to pull back if it turns out you're wrong. Sometimes you're going to be. Thank you, Chris, for offering your insights today. We believe there's a phased approach for the safe and seamless traveler journey vision. And two critical stakeholders that we talked about today were the travel providers and the technology providers, too. 
In our report, we have outlined a path forward for the near term and long term for government, travel providers, and technology stakeholders. Yeah, and it feels as though we only scratched the surface in this conversation, and we could probably talk about this for hours. One thing we touched on lightly is around that government collaboration, and you spoke briefly about TSA and this new program coming up that we could talk more about, but also the public perception, which we touched on lately. And it'd be very interesting, and we're all curious. Those of you who are listening today, feel free to let us know about the areas that are of interest to you to hear more about. If you'd like to share those thoughts or any questions that you have that we discussed today, please feel free to write to us at Oliver Wyman, both on Twitter and uh, LinkedIn. Thank you for joining us for the Velocity Podcast. We invite you to subscribe so you'll be notified when the next episode goes live. 